Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Plant-based meat alternatives continue their downward slide with sales, unit, and volume all dropping in July from a year ago, a trajectory that IRI data crunched by 2010 analytics shows was set in motion months ago, but about which at least one investment analyst is unperturbed. In the four weeks ending August 28th, dollar sales of fresh and frozen plant-based meat alternatives dipped 0.9% to $92 million. Unit sales fell 7.2% to $17 million, and volume sales measured in pounds fell 4.2% to $12 million compared to the same time last year. And while unit and volume have consistently fallen month over month this year, this is only the second time that sales have dropped in the same period with the other occurring in May. The downward decline is uneven across plant-based meat, mainly concentrating in refrigerated products, for which volume sales fell 16.7% in August and 10% over the past year, and dollar sales fell 16.2% for the month and 9.5% for the year. The drop in August sales came even with a 0.6% lift in price per pound and a 0.1% increase in price per unit. And yet, Fazila Abdul-Rashid, a partner at the capital market company Revolution Growth, says she still sees great promise in the plant-based meat segment, which she described as still in its early days. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Abdul Rashid shares where she sees the most potential for alternative proteins and how the industry must evolve to seize those opportunities, as well as overcome the current challenges that are contributing to its backward slide. She also shares tips for creating a sustainable business model to deliver on the multifaceted needs of consumers, the planet, and investors even in a period of economic uncertainty and constant flux. As one of the newest members of Revolution Growth's team, Abdul Rashid says she was drawn to the Growth Fund's mission to deploy capital outside of the main tech hubs and because it values collaboration, two elements that she says are essential to the turnaround and long-term growth of the still nascent alternative protein space because they foster diversity and accountability. Growth Fund um, really supports businesses that are commercial or at the cusp of commercialization, so really to drive, you know, past um, sort of technology risk, but really, you know, commercialization and execution. And so um, the ability to deploy capital at scale, we typically write checks of anywhere between 10 to $40 million um, and more when you include reserves for future rounds. Uh, to support businesses in their evolution of growth. Um, That's really our mission. We typically lead uh, rounds, we price those rounds, and we take active positions on on the boards. The fact that we're D.C. headquartered and have a lot of inroads and insights of what's happening in D.C. that, you know, really helps a lot of companies as you think about policy and regulation. And, And again, in an area like food tech, it is uh, coming to become, uh, starting to become front of mind to a lot of folks. And, um, you know, it is helpful that we can be part of that discussion to help, you know, as policy and regulation sort of shift to uh, an area that is up and coming like uh, food tech and alternative protein. 
I was just reflecting on when I actually started my investing career in 2005, 2006, after coming out of business school. And at that point, I, you know, the firm that I was with was an early investors in Annie's, if you remember, Healthy Produce. And when you think about the evolution of food and how we've come from, you know, healthier, better for you food in 2005 and six, and having a natural category was quote-unquote disruptive. And we've come from there to today where, you know, we're talking about alternative proteins, we're talking about food technology, we're talking about sustainability and where we can take food in a way that um, 10 years ago, you know, that wasn't even part of the conversation. So when I think about the journey of food, it, it really has come a long way. And in particular, the last four to five years has seen a burgeoning of, you know, companies that have been funded. And in such a way that, Honestly, as I reflect on it, it's not a monolith, right? When you look at what has been funded, um, there are companies that are called plant-based. There are companies that are making, you know, cultivated cell meats. There's plant-based dairy. There's plant-based meats. There's, you know, even within meats now, you're seeing things that are coming from microorganisms. So when I just look at the breadth of what's being funded, it's, it's a lot. Abdul Rashid acknowledged that challenges and false starts inevitably accompany change at the pace experienced currently in the alternative protein space. But she says she's confident that these will be addressed in a timely fashion as the space continues to evolve and grow. We're really at, at its early innings, right? When you think of companies at scale, there's very few companies at scale. So I'd say we're probably in the second inning of plant-based um, or alternative proteins for meat. We might be at the third inning for plant-based dairy. Um, but that's still really early in the evolution of this entire category of alternative proteins. There aren't even cheeses, you know, at scale on the market yet, right? And then you think about where else you could take alternative proteins. I'd say the category that continue to evolve and, and build from the core of meats and dairy and um, as, as the sort of two underpinnings of where you're seeing some scale. Yeah, I think this industry will evolve so that it will have variety. I think you'll start seeing, you know, a plant-based category. You'll start seeing a microorganism court category. You'll eventually see an animal cell category. I think consumers will react differently to each one of these categories, but it gives people who are looking for options around, I don't want to eat meat anymore, but I want to eat something that tastes good and something that meets my preferences, whatever those preferences are between taste, serving the planet, health, etc., and you will find your lane. And I believe that when people find those lanes and everyone's solving for different needs, under the consumer's preferences, we will start to build an industry that is much larger than it is today and create a true market in the alternative protein space. But for this to happen, she argues, entrepreneurs and investors must rethink how they evaluate opportunities. Rather than continue to focus primarily on growth, which is important, she says stakeholders also must consider what consumers want, a notion that is simultaneous obvious and often overlooked. As Abdul Rashid explains, this includes products that not only taste good, but also are healthier for them and the planet, and balance uniqueness with consumer comfort and acceptance. If you step back and look at how these areas have been funded in the last four to five years, everyone recognized from a macro perspective that there is value investing in alternative proteins 
first from a sustainability perspective, which is, you know, I think how the industry started evolving, but as you evolve that thinking from both a consumer preference and a health and wellness perspective, right? And so when you take those three lenses, and I always break down the lenses in that way and put a framework of you have to create technology and innovation, you have to create consumer preference, and you have to create something that is better for you but, and better for the environment, then you start bifurcating over time how you put your money to work as you support businesses. And I'd say if you looked a couple of years ago, we probably used one lens, right? Climate and technology and innovation as the lens of investing in this business was very macro-driven. People were taking more of a portfolio approach and supporting a lot of different businesses. You're now getting to a point, I think, in the industry, and part of it is driven by how quickly the industry has evolved, but two, um, how the macro environment has also evolved as you think about what you're looking for and not just purely growth, but sustainable businesses. Only recently have you started in, inter, interspersing the conversation around what, what actually tastes good and what does the consumer want to eat, you know, and putting that as part of the equation, not just, you know, and using that as another lens of, thinking about where you would put dollars. And so I think of that as how you would then start to support and be discriminating about where the dollars flow over time. When it comes to meeting consumer needs, alternative protein needs to taste good, of course, but increasingly shoppers are looking for products that offer positive nutrition, are environmentally friendly, and which are made in a way that they can understand and feel comfortable with. People always say as an investor, you shouldn't use yourself as the only example, but I use this and I ask people, my husband's uh, a full meat eater, he, he wouldn't even call himself a flexitarian, and when, you, when someone like that you know, has an averseness to trying something new, they care about, okay, does it taste as good? Does it have the same nutrition profile? Am I getting the same amount of protein as eating a piece of steak or a piece of chicken? What else is in there? You know, people ask those questions if you're asking them to give up something they're used to eating every day. And if they're not getting anything better out of the experience, um, whether that be taste, whether that be nutrition, that be quality of ingredients, it becomes difficult to make someone switch, right? And you're asking them to eat something, ingest something into their body, and people care about, their body is a temple now, I think, as you think about consumer preferences and what consumers care about, their health, their wellness, we just come out of a pandemic, I think has become even more acute. And so quality of ingredients, integrity of ingredients, I think becomes extremely important. I think about looking at the back of an ingredient list, and if I can't read what's at the back of the ingredient or recognize it, I get nervous about eating it, and I don't think I'm the only one who has that lens. I think a lot of consumers today do. I do believe that there's value in IP and there's value in technology and what's unique about that ingredient. But if that ingredient makes someone nervous, um, regardless of, you know, the protection, I would say the consumer gets nervous about trying that or trying it more than once, right? Um, and so it is a balance that I think industry has to figure out around making something uniquely, uh, but making something that is, you know, that people understand and people are willing to take a risk on. And so it's, it's, a, it's a tough balance because the other piece we haven't talked about in that same equation is you're also trying to solve a sustainability issue. 
And when you think about making things in a manufacturing plant and trying to make sure you get the same muscle texture and the same flavor profile, it is actually quite complex. And I think the, the you know, normal consumer doesn't think about how difficult it is to make something taste exactly like meat or exactly like chicken. Um, and if people want that same experience, you do have to go through certain types of processes to get there. That being said, I think, you know, industry has to hold themselves to a standard where you are not um, sacrificing quality, health, and future risk of health in that construct. And I think it's the owners of industry and investors to educate the consumer around all the value that this industry is created together. But I think the industry has also been focused on coming up with products and focused on sustainability and the value of sustainability, but not as much around educating the consumer on the journey we are on to meet their needs and expectations over time, which is multifaceted, right? Because you're trying to solve for quite a few things in, in this alternative protein space. Um, saving the planet, um, reducing climate you know, exposure and decarb, you are trying to, um, you know, meet customers' taste expectations, customers' health expectations, customers' um, variety expectations, and um, also retailer demand, you know, around how you, how you put this product out and do it profitably. That is actually quite a complex mix to create, and I think bringing the customer on the journey of what you're trying to solve for but, but also telling them that this can taste good, this can be in your diet, this is how you would create recipes, this is how you could incorporate it in your weekly mix, and um, this is the nutrition value, this is why we create and use product or ingredient A, because it gives you the muscle texture, or it gives you this flavor profile, and by the way, it is safe, um, and this is why it's safe. And I think you've got to go to the second order and explain why it's safe and how it's safe as opposed to just saying it's safe um, because people get nervous about these things. And, and so I think, I think bringing consumers on the journey will change, in my view, the market opportunity. Um, and you can see this a little bit. I use the plant-based uh, dairy market as an example if you look at where plant-based dairy has gone, because it's pretty easy to explain what's, what's in plant-based dairy. It's basically oat and water or almond and water, and, you know, if you go through that journey, people can sort of understand it. We are now close to about 15% of overall dairy, you know, usage in plant-based dairy, which is a pretty decent-sized number. It's because it's pretty to, easy to explain it, but it also tastes good, and there's enough now in the marketplace that people can bifurcate also, you know, premium products, you know, middle-of-the-road products, you know, lower-end products, um, private label, but also meeting different taste expectations, but it's easy to explain what you're eating and drinking there. As important as it is to create a product that consumers crave and are comfortable consuming, Abdul Rashid says alternative protein players also must create a business model that's sustainable, something that hasn't always happened in the space. You need to look at the landscape and say what is undifferentiated and how your product can be differentiated, and not just purely from a technology perspective. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in this industry of alternative proteins, 
um, focus a lot on IP and focus a lot on technology, which I think is important because, you know, that technology and IP does, you know, allow you to create a product that is built in a fermentation vat or in a man scaled manufacturing plant. But if you're making another mince burger or another nugget or another form factor that exists and there's already 10 other SKUs in the marketplace, you're not solving the customer's unmet need, right? Again, going back to what is the customer looking for? The customer is looking for something they don't see on the marketplace. Is there a whole cut meat in the center of the plate that really isn't one of scale today? Everyone's, you know, focused on burgers and nuggets and sausages um, and meatballs. And so that's one, I think, that is an area of focus. Quality of ingredients and integrity of ingredients. So if you can be truly differentiated in that, that would make you stand out in the customer. And can you make the product cheaply so that you can come up with a business model that is viable over time um, and you don't have any supply chain issues? When I think if you have that as your element, of course you need supportive investors along who believe in all of that, you, I think, have a secret sauce to unearth a product and a product portfolio. Again, actually that's the other piece thinking of it as a portfolio approach and not just one skill, one product, right? You want to build a real business and a real business of scale can't be built with just one product. So you put all of that in the mix and that I think creates the secret sauce of creating a sustainable company in the alternative protein space. A sustainable business model also needs to take into account how much consumers are willing to spend on alternative protein compared to their animal counterparts. On this point, she argues, the current economic uncertainty and inflation may actually work in favor for alternative protein producers. Inflation has resulted in price of chicken and beef going up about 16 to 17% in the last two years, which is pretty high if you, know, you step back and look at how much uh, that is on your pound of meat. And on the flip side, alternative protein providers are trying to bring down price over time, even though it's still at a premium to alternate, uh, you know, to animal base. And so I truly believe you come to a point where this gets to parity sooner if, if we continue to see the inflation as, we, as, it, as it goes. And I actually think it is an interesting intersection around how alternative proteins has a place to play in this world of an inflationary environment. Um, and it's not just inflationary environment caused by today's macro dynamics, right? You have um, all kinds of diseases that, you know, disrupt supply chain on the animal-based protein side. Um, you have increase in demand across the world, which no one ever thinks about as you get a growing middle class across the world. So I actually don't think this phenomenon is going to reduce over time. It may slow down, but I think you are going to get to a point where if cost of producing alternative protein becomes more favorable as people figure out how to deal with their issues and cost of animal-based protein goes up over time, there is a world where there is a larger share of alternative protein in a world where it sits side by side you know, animal-based protein in your diet because it's not as expensive anymore um, and it's almost at parity. Um, I don't think we're there 100% yet, but the decision to pick up one versus the other I think is less difficult to make when the difference in price is not as stark. If checking all of these boxes sounds like a tall order, that's because it is. But it's also possible, argues Abdul Rashid. 
As an example, she points to the plant-based protein company Meaty Foods, which makes whole food proteins from mushroom root, and recently secured a $150 million funding round led by Revolution, on which board Abdul Rashid sits. When I look at the framework around technology and innovation and having IP, um, you know, there is a unique IP around, around the company, around how they actually use fermentation to convert mycelium, which is, in my mind, a superfood and a differentiated food into, um, you know, something that can mimic the texture of meat. Um, it actually tastes really good. I, having tasted so many of these, you know, go in almost skeptical, and I ate a clean cutlet, which essentially is a clean piece of chicken, you know, um, alternative chicken with, you know, salt and pepper, and it actually tasted really good. I've experimented it with it in my home, you know, cooking it in a couple of different ways, and it holds up its integrity, which, again, consumers want variety and the ability to use it in many different ways, and at its core, it's a whole cut. Um, there was a lot of excitement from the corporate and retailer uh, market, both retail and food service, which gave us a lot of confidence that this was a differentiated product relative to what's out there. Um, and that's what we were trying to solve for, not to have another Me Too product, but a differentiated product. Um, and that really came down to the fact that it was whole cut, it tasted great, um, and it was clean, you know, back to you can read the label and the label doesn't have more than four or five things at the back of it and everyone is easily understood to the consumer. So for me, and it's got very high protein content and so good for you, healthy for you, and everything that alternative protein is trying to solve for better for the environment. So it differentiated itself from all of those elements that I hadn't really seen before in one company and one product. Uh, and it is not just creating one product, but has a few of products that are multiple skews of products that are coming out, which got me very excited. I tasted a bunch of things that are still in pilot, and each one somewhat blew my mind, actually, that they were all, you know, not steak or not, you know, carne asada or not, um, you know, a pork bun. So it, it was pretty cool to, to see a company evolve, um, and that's why we sort of bet on the company, even though they haven't, you know, launched a product in um, in store. So when we when we invested in it, they were still pre-launch and they're now available in Sprout and Call and hopefully by the end of the year, um, you know, with a national launch. As illustrated by Media's advancement, Abdul Rashid added that partnerships will be essential for helping the alternative protein space overcome its current challenges to meet the longer term needs of consumers and the planet while also creating sustainable businesses. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.